everyone. I'm Mike Ward and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a video series brought to you by DRG, part of Clarivate. This is an opportunity for us to hear at first hand the, the challenges and opportunities um, that, you know, facing the healthcare uh, industry and, and how business leaders are actually sort of you know, managing those, those particular uh, challenges. So, you know, I mean, particularly when, when events uh, like, you know, sort of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, uh, are unleashed. So in line with this, I, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Jonathan Javitt. Uh, he's the, the founder, the chairman and CEO of Newer RX, uh, a private biotech company that's based in Radnor, Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, they at the moment uh, have a lead program, which is... Uh, currently in phase three trials, and it's targeting uh, suicidal bipolar depression. Earlier this year, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, NeuroRx, in collaboration with Relief Therapeutics, started investigating the potential of Avitadol uh, to treat patients with COVID-19-related uh, respiratory failure. So, Jonathan, I, I hope you and those you care about are keeping well, and thanks so much for, for, for joining us. Well, thank you. It's really a pleasure to talk to you today. So, so before we sort of look at what your company's actually been doing specifically to combat COVID-19, it, it would be useful for us to sort of you know, get some sort of, you know, background, understanding sort of, you know, the core business model of, of, of the company. So we're a small group of scientists who came together around the realization that the pharmaceutical industry wasn't doing nearly enough to develop drugs for patients with suicidal depression. Those are the patients nobody wants. Patients who are mildly depressed, who are gonna be on antidepressant medications for the rest of their lives, those patients are highly attractive to the pharmaceutical industry. But these people who get acutely depressed, who have a high risk of harming themselves, nobody wants to touch them. And uh, it happens that my younger, smarter, better looking brother made a series of extraordinary discoveries around the molecular basis of suicidal depression, suicidal ideation that have now become mainstream. But when we started the company, they were not at all mainstream. All around the role of the NMDA receptor in blocking suicidal depression, suicidal ideation. And that's really why we started the company. Okay, so so how did you sort of um, choose the, the, the programs uh, or you know, sort of, yeah, the, sort of the approach that you've taken because in fact it is of some molecules that are, or have already been sort of approved in different indications. So all of this came from Dane Javits' discoveries, patented discoveries around the role of the NMDA receptor in the brain and uh, the effect of blocking the NMDA receptor uh, on uh, rapidly reducing suicidal thoughts. So it really began from a drug screening perspective, looking for molecules that would block the glycine site on the NMDA receptor. And lo and behold, one of those molecules happened to be an old tuberculosis drug. All right. So it had nothing. To, it had nothing to do with looking at a drug and saying what other things could we use this drug for. It had to do with looking at a molecular target and saying what things block this target. 
Right. And and how do, so so what does that then involve? Does that involve then doing a sort of you know sort of a a literature search to actually look at other you know, molecules that could sort of you know, interact with that with it, that mechanism? It starts with a literature search to give you a broad list of candidates. Uh, in the case of neuropsychiatry, there's not really any high throughput screening that's very effective. So most of the screening work is done uh, literally in mice uh, because mice exhibit certain behaviors that can very readily be measured. For instance, uh, and if you put a mouse in a beaker of water, uh, it'll start swimming and then it'll give up. And uh, drugs that uh, have an effect on human depression are well known to increase the amount of time the mouse keeps swimming. It's called the forced swim test. Sounds like a fairly crude thing. It actually works quite well. Uh, so the, the screening that you do for neuropsychiatry drugs tends to be uh, small animal-based screening and, and not molecular screening, but hopefully that'll change in the next few years. All right. So, yeah, beyond the sort of, you know, sort of like, you know, the screening, so what, what, what are the other challenges, you know, when you, you're taking, sort of, say, you know, existing molecules that have been demonstrated to have activity in, in, in other indications, what are the other challenges that are associated with then developing that, say, for example, for a new uh, in, indication? Well, then, then once you've got strong candidates, it's a matter of dealing with FDA, making sure that you've got sufficient safety and toxicity data to satisfy FDA, that this molecule should be allowed into the clinic, convincing investors that the molecule has a decent enough chance of succeeding to be worth the financial risk. Yeah. And is it easy to secure intellectual property? Um, no, or, it's you know, quite difficult, but we're, we're excited that uh, we've been awarded composition of matter patent uh, because we convinced the patent examiner that this really was a novel invention. Right, right. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, because obviously, you know, that's, that's, I guess, the sort of the, the, the key issue around a patent that there has to be, uh, you know, novelty. So where are you actually in the sort of the development of, um, you know, the uh, NRX uh, 101. That molecule has breakthrough therapy designation. It's in phase three clinical trial under a special protocol agreement. We had to pause the clinical trial in March because the pandemic was so disruptive that we couldn't get patients in and out of the clinic in a reliable way. Right. And, and so, so the impact, um, that means you were unable to I mean, were you fully enrolled on, 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 on the trial? Yes. So, so at the moment, so, so what impact does that actually have on the, sort of the veracity of the trial, the fact that you've had to pause it? Is, is that, it has is, no impact on the veracity of the trial, but it certainly has an impact on the timeline of the trial. Right, right. And do you have any sort of indication when you might be able to... You know, Every time we think the pandemic's slowing down, it fools us. Right. Okay, so so can you give us some, you know, you mentioned the pandemic, can you give us some sort of, uh, of, of the background of how you, you know, came to identify uh, a Vitadil you know, as a potential uh, in the treatment of, of, of COVID-19 uh, patients? Sure. Uh, 
one of our investors approached us right at the beginning of March and said, you know, we, we have uh, this uh, molecule that's been sitting on the shelf for 10 years. And uh, one of our scientists thinks that it may have something to do with COVID. Would you look at it? Uh, and we looked at the data. They certainly didn't have any data on COVID. But what they had was 20-year-old data showing that this molecule, vasoactive intestinal peptide, and the only difference between a viptidol and VIP is that VIP is a natural 28 amino acid peptide, whereas the viptidol is a synthetically synthesized man-made version of that same peptide. Uh, data going back 20 years showing that this uh, peptide had a very profound effect in the treatment of acute respiratory distress syndrome in the ICU. And the notion was that perhaps it might have a similar role uh, in treating uh, COVID-19 patients on ventilators. So we began looking at it. We became convinced that it was really worth a try. We approached FDA and within 48 hours, FDA had given us permission to take this into the clinic and treat patients. Within 10 weeks, we had successfully formulated the drug, proven its stability, proven that it was sterile, proven that it was potent, and treated our first patient 10 weeks after we first approached FDA. So, so how, how does it work? Well, sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words, and, and I brought you a picture because it is a slightly complicated story. So it's really all about the lung. And if, uh, if the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes COVID, didn't invade the lung, it would be nothing worse than a bad cold because it doesn't really cause much in the way of other symptoms in the body except sometimes a fever. But if it gets down into the little air sacs of the lung, then all of the trouble starts. And it's really only a very specific cell in the lung, this alveolar type 2 cell that is susceptible to the COVID infection. The problem is that alveolar 2 cell has a specific receptor on its surface, like a lock fitting a key. The virus sees that receptor, binds to it, and the next thing you know, the virus is inside the cell, making millions of copies of itself. But even worse, it destroys the surfactant fluid that coats the lung. And without that fluid, the lung can't transmit oxygen. Well, VIP has been shown in hundreds of scientific papers to bind to that same vulnerable cell, to bind to the alveolar 2 cell via its own special receptor. And once it gets into the cell, it blocks the replication of the coronavirus, it blocks the formation of inflammatory cytokines. It blocks the cell death that's caused by the virus. So it's really a guided missile against the damage caused by COVID-19. All right. But VIP, uh, though, um, it's not just sort of related to, you know, the, the lung, is it? I mean, it, it, it exists else, elsewhere in the well, body. It, it, it does exist all over the body, yeah. and it has some interesting roles. It happens to be a vasodilator, so it's been used for erectile dysfunction, which has nothing to do with its binding to the alveolar 2 cell in the yeah. lung. 
But in the, it turns out that 70% of the VIP in the body is in the lung. And this peptide is what protects the human lung against all sorts of attack. So the reason you can inhale smoke, your house is on fire, you inhaled a bunch of smoke, you've got a serious smoke-induced lung injury, the reason you can heal from that injury and not die is because of VIP. Uh, human beings occasionally inhale stomach contents uh, because they vomited and aspirated. And, you know, stomach acid has a pH of about two. It would wipe out the lung epithelium except for the protective role of VIP. VIP is shown to have a role in protecting the lung against various viruses. In fact, there's some very intriguing data that came out of Brazil showing that people who survived critical COVID-19 infection have twice the amount of VIP floating around in their blood as people who died. So even though VIP has other roles in the body, it's really very heavily focused on the lung. All right, so it's almost like a potential biomarker for you know, how likely a patient is going to progress if they end up on ventilation in an ICU. Yeah, you could, you could actually do a serum VIP level on the way in the door and know a lot. Right, right. Okay. And the fact that the, the, the VIP does have sort of effects elsewhere in, in the body, does that sort of create any sort of you know, challenge around you know, potential off-target um, sort of you know, reactions? I yeah, mean, it, it certainly does. And if you look on our, uh, our information on the internet or on our pharmacy manual, uh, intravenously delivered VIP causes diarrhea. So intensive care units that are using this intravenously have to be alert for that. It can cause a drop in blood pressure and doctors who are treating critically ill patients need to be ready for that. There are various medicines called pressors that raise blood pressure. Uh, VIP when it's given inhaled uh, is much more, uh, much less likely to have off target effects. There have really been and hundreds of people who have been given inhaled VIP for various reasons. Uh, severe diarrhea doesn't happen. Drops in blood pressure tend not to happen. Uh, it's a very different drug because when you inhale something like this, it's really only going to the lung. So, so what progress have you, you made you know, so far? And you know, what are the, sort of the timelines for you know, sort of future milestones? Well, as I said, it took us 10 weeks to get from uh, FDA's permission to treat the first patient. That was May 15th. It's now September 15th. And the, our data monitoring committee is about to take a look at the first unblinded data. Uh, and uh, they may tell us there's a safety problem, although we haven't seen any sign of one. And they previously told us they didn't either. Or they may tell us that, in fact, they see some signs, encouraging signs towards efficacy. Who are too sick to be in the They were transplant patients. They were patients who had cancer and were on drugs. patients with the same level of acuity in critical COVID-19, the 
survived. Only patients survived. Large differences in blood oxygen, large differences in chest x-rays getting better. So even though you never know whether case control results will translate into randomized controlled trial results, when you see an effect this large, you can certainly be encouraged. So what plans do you have if you know, the, sort of the trials are uh, successful and you know, demonstrate the results that you, you're hoping to see? What, what's the plan to get, you know, how are you going to get this into, in, into patients? Well, we've established a manufacturing partnership with the largest manufacturer of inhaled sterile products in the United States. We've established a distribution partner with the largest distributor of drugs in the United States. So really, uh, as soon as the FDA gives us the green light, we're able to bring this nationwide. Right. So, so you're, you're, you've got the manufacturing capacity and so sort of the, the, the delivery. So will, will it be, uh, you know, have a NeuroRx label on it or are you looking for a partner to, you know, get this, 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 this drug? Well, we're always open to partnership, but the reality is large pharmaceutical partners take really two years to spin up a drug. Yeah. And we have people who need this drug today. Yeah. And, and, and what about outside the U.S.? Are there sort of you know, plans to, we're, um, we're to get this? We're talking to all sorts of partners, uh, and uh, I'm sure as the data come along, partners will emerge. Okay, so I mean, you know, reflecting on what has actually sort of happened this year, um, you know, what, you know, as 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 a CEO, what are you now doing differently um, that's you know helping you sort of you know manage, uh, you know, both the sort of the sort of the disruption around the pandemic, but also sort of thinking about actually you know, how the company might look differently going forward. Well, we've all stopped going to the office. I've stopped traveling. Uh, and you know, it's amazing how much of my life was consumed with you know, traveling and business dinners and, and things that were not actually driving the mission forward. I'm not entirely sure why we will go back to the way we used to do things. Uh, you know, that, that travel budget was probably uh, a very nice executive salary. Yeah, I don't think we could have done things at the pace we've done things if we did them the old-fashioned way. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned the sort of the fact that you know, sort of the speed that you were able to get through with the with with, with the regulators. Do you think that that is something that um, you know going forward will be uh, something that we'll be able to to, to retain? I'm not sure the regulators will work in crisis mode once the crisis has passed. I think uh, I'm going to treasure the 2 a.m. emails I've gotten from people at FDA because I don't think I'm ever going to see that happen again. Uh, but, you know, we've all learned to do things new ways, and I think that that's going to create a permanent change in the way we think about doing business. Okay, so Jonathan, th thanks very much for, for, for joining me today. Um, you know, it's 
the insights that you've been sharing are you know really important i think you know the work you're doing i think we're all sort of pretty excited by the results that you've already shared with us and you know the potential of of, of those programs so you know definitely good luck with that um so if after listening to 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 this broadcast uh you'd like to tune into future conversations in healthcare follow our linkedin page um because that's where we're going to be posting you know, alerts for for uh, future and, and, and upcoming episodes so in closing I'd, I'd like to thank Jonathan again for, for for taking the time to to join with us today and I also like to thank all our listeners for uh, for tuning in so until next time stay safe and healthy I'm Mike Ward and I'll see you in the next episode <laughs>